0: This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Kavanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. And uh, as you're sitting down, if you could open up your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 20. Chapter 20 in the Gospel of... John, Uh, I I wanted to piggyback on one of the announcements for just a second, if I could, and uh, just invite you out to the announcement Rob made. I'm going to be teaching a theology class uh, starting in February. Uh, But before inviting you, I'd really like to discourage you from coming. And uh, so, if if uh, if you have financial issues in your life that you're struggling with, do not come to this class. Go to Financial Peace University. that that's a priority. Um, if it's difficult for you to make it to your community group during the week, don't come to this class. If you've got one night out a week, please go to your community group. That's the priority. That's the value. If you are in Reach, uh, this class will conflict with two Reach meetings. Do not come those two nights. Go to Reach. It's better to be at Reach. It's better to be at your community group, and it's better to be at Financial Peace University if you are dealing with financial issues. If, you're, if all those categories don't apply to you, please come. We'd love to have you. Um, and we won't be asking at the door all those questions I just asked. But we'd love to, love to have you as we teach on the doctrine of salvation. Uh, it'll be a systematic theology class uh, teaching soteriology, which is the uh, doctrine of salvation. And you think, well, what's there to know about salvation? I'm already a Christian, so we'll be answering all kinds of questions like, uh, Who does what in salvation? What does God do? What do I do? in salvation because we're both involved talk about that Uh, I'll talk about why does God choose some people but not other people to be saved we'll talk about regeneration Um, do you have to believe in order to be born again or do you have to first be born again before you can even believe we'll talk about what is conversion how do I know if I'm converted how do I know if my children are really converted Uh, we'll talk about the doctrine of adoption the doctrine of justification um, we'll talk about sanctification, how to grow in the Lord. Uh, we'll talk about can a believer lose their salvation. Uh, we'll talk about what happens when we die. Um, we'll talk about what, it, what is the intermediate state, what happens to you when you die. So it will cover salvation from eternity past, election, to eternity future, glorification, resurrection, body, heaven. So that's pretty much the this, this, this scan of everything. And we'll do all that in eight weeks. So anyway. Um, and we'll offer the class again, so if you need to do your finances this time, great. Come to the next class in the future. We'll do, we'll do the same class again. Well, today we are starting on a journey, and uh, we're starting on a journey through the Gospel of John, and we're not going to take a plane journey, the, the, an airplane, which is quick. We're going to take a car ride. We're going to stop and see some sights along the way. We're going to take our time and move uh, slowly. And playing with that metaphor, I, I want us to look at the map a little bit today, and I want us to talk about the destination. We're not even getting the car out of park. Uh, next week, we'll start with Chapter 1. We'll put it in drive. We'll pull out of the driveway, and uh, we will start going. Um, I don't know how long we're going to actually spend in this, because I'm really wrestling with what kind of pace. I want to talk through the Gospel of Mark and spend felt what felt like 10 years, and I'm not going to do that pace, so we'll do some, some sermons will be large chunks, uh, so we will move, but we're, we're still going to move in a way that will, this will occupy us probably for the most of 2011, so, and we'll give plenty of, plenty of time to that, so as we start on the journey looking at the map, looking at the destination, let's pray for traveling mercies right now as we begin. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word climaxes in the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so we pray that as we occupy our hearts and minds with you, Jesus, over the coming months and maybe year, that you would reveal yourself to us in a glorious way. We pray that we as a church would know you more deeply. We pray that we would experience you more meaningfully. We pray that we would be captured For the first time, if we're unbelievers here today or all over again, if we're already believers, we pray that we'd be captured with a breathtaking vision of you, Lord Jesus, that we would value you more, love you more, treasure you more, that you would be everything to us as we study you and meditate on you and apply these truths. So, Lord, we pray for the journey ahead, that, God, you would meet us, that you would change us along the way. And that we would have vistas every Sunday of the glorious Savior and of his work in the gospel. And uh, Lord, we pray that you would, you would just sustain us and change us. We pray that you would bring new people to us during this season that they could hear of Jesus Christ. Both those who know you and those who don't. Um, so Lord, may it be a wonderful year of contemplating and meditating on you, our Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. The um, Southern novelist Walker Percy made an interesting observation. Not Walker, Texas Ranger, but Walker Percy, uh, for the less literate amongst us. It was not Walker, Texas Ranger that I'm quoting. But Walker Percy made the following observation about human nature. Excuse me. He said that whenever we look at a group picture, whenever we look at a group picture that we're part of, that we quickly scan everyone in the picture. And find ourselves in the picture. It's just human nature, and often what happens is we know the other people. We know what they look like because we see them all the time, perhaps. But we're looking for what we look like, and oftentimes there's <clears throat> a bit of a pain when we see ourselves and say, "Oh, is that what I look like?" Because we're not used to seeing ourselves. We are looking for ourselves, and, and the reason that happens is because the others are familiar. And yet, we are perhaps not as used to seeing ourselves, and so we zero in. And oftentimes, uh, we can be aware of ourselves and traits, and, oh, I didn't know I looked that way, and, and this, that, and the other, just focusing on ourselves in the picture, looking for ourselves to see how we appear. And the same approach is far too common in Scripture, that we look at the pictures of Scripture We look at the narrative of Scripture, we look at the teaching of Scripture, and we focus on ourselves. We read the Scripture with an eye towards ourselves, with an eye towards what difference does this make for us. So we start with, we often read the Bible, and especially if you've been a Christian very long, we read the Gospels this way, because if you've been a Christian very long, you're probably not going to hear anything in the coming year that you've not read before. And so we look at the familiar, we know the story, we know the events, we know the teaching, we we know what happens, we know how it ends, we're familiar with the story, and so we can sometimes pass over the details of the story and pass over the people in the picture, the person in the picture... And we can look for what this means to me. So it can be like, what does this mean to me? What am I supposed to do? We can start there sometimes. What is, what is uh, the principle for living that I can gain out of this? What are the action steps I'm supposed to take when I read this passage about Jesus? What does this passage give me to do? What does it reveal about my need for change? What does it reveal about my character? What difference does this make in my life right now? Sometimes we lead with that. And yet that's not how the gospel is meant to be read because the gospel is is not about us. And here's a revolutionary idea. This idea will change your life probably more than anything I'm going to say the rest of this morning. This is a revolutionary idea that will change the way we interpret Scripture if we believe it and apply it. And it's this idea. The Bible is about God. And I'm not mocking when I say it's revolutionary because when I first grasped hold of that idea, after I'd been a Christian a long time, actually I was leading, I was a leader when that idea first kind of began to sink in on me. I was teaching others Uh, The idea that the Bible is about God and and that the the Gospels in particular are about Jesus Christ. They have relevance to us. We make application to our lives to be sure. But in the first place, the Bible is written to reveal God. The Bible is written to reveal the person of Jesus Christ in the Gospels. And so when we look at the text of Scripture, we want to be leading with these questions. When we look at the Gospel of John, we want to be leading with these questions. We don't want to look at the picture and identify ourselves. We want to look at the picture and ask this, where is Jesus in the picture? What is Jesus like? What does Jesus do? What has he done? What does Jesus Teach? How does Jesus interact with people? What does Jesus encourage in others? And what does Jesus condemn in others? What is important to Jesus as I read the Gospel of John? Who is he? What has he done? And what is he like? That is the primary question that we want to ask when we come to the Gospels because our lives will be changed when we come to the Gospels to know Jesus not to in the first place run over him to find out something for ourselves to grab a nugget for ourselves so to speak and and its count that's a counterintuitive idea because we tend to think I'll be changed when I come primarily looking for life change and the reality is you'll be changed when you primarily come looking for Jesus and then meditating on him, knowing him, considering him, trusting in him, believing in him, adoring him, loving him, worshiping him, cherishing him, will begin to change you from the inside, so that your desires change, your perspective changes, your heart changes, and that leads to lasting change and application in your life. So it's counterintuitive. Come looking for Jesus And as you see him and respond to him, you will be changed rather than come looking for life change. Well, it's nice for me to say those things, but it's perhaps better to see what John himself tells us about his reason for writing. Because in this gospel, John says very clearly why he is writing. And this is what he says in verse uh, 30 and 31 of chapter 20. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that, that's a a purpose clause, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. Why does he write? To reveal Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. And that so by believing that, we may experience life in his name. I want to look at this passage that we just read and talk about really three things. This is an overview about the Gospel of John. I want to look at the nature of the Gospel of John. I want to look at the purpose of the Gospel of John. And then I want to look at the fruit of re- believing or responding to the Gospel of John. First would be the nature of of the Gospel of John. Gospels are a genre of literature that are not like uh, what we might call autobiography. Uh, We don't get the whole account of Jesus's life from birth uh, to resurrection and ascension. The purpose of the Gospels are not to write an autobiography where we get every detail. As a matter of fact, in the Gospel of John, um, you know, almost half, well not quite half, but almost half of the, of the gospel takes place <clears throat> the last week of his life. So a significant part of the book is one week of his entire life, which may have been 33 years or so. Um, so the, the purpose is not giving us everything, and he makes that clear right here. He said, verse 30, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. So John's telling us that his gospel is selective. It's a selective history. It's a true history. It's an inerrant history, as are all the gospels. But it's selective in nature. He wants to tell us certain things that Jesus taught and did because he wants us to understand something very specific about Jesus, which he reveals in this passage. There are many signs that he did. In chapters 2 through 11, we'll look at seven signs that, that John gives us, seven signs that Jesus is the Messiah. So in chapters 2 through 11, we will be exposed to that. The greatest sign he did is his death and resurrection, and that's the context here. When he says he did many other signs, what's just happened is he has interacted with Thomas, who has said he won't believe that Jesus is resurrected unless he sees the scars, touches the scars. And so he shows his hands and he shows his side to prove to Thomas that he's resurrected. So that's a major sign. And there's other signs given as well. So he's given us a selective account. And each of the Gospels give us a true account, but a different account, a different perspective of Jesus. And John is by far the most unique of the Gospels. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar. They probably have some of the same sources. Mark is probably written first. They use Mark. Luke and Matthew use Mark and they may have some common documents they're, they're uh, using as well as they write. So the other, uh, the other three Gospels view Jesus together. They, they have a very similar view of Jesus. Sometimes they're called the Synoptic Gospels, which means optic is to see and sin is with or together. So it's to see together. The other three Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, see Jesus together very similarly. John gives us a different view of Jesus than the other do. Than the other do. It's, they complement one another, but it's different. For instance, in the Gospel of John, there are no parables. We don't get any of Jesus' parables. There's no exorcisms. You, you read the Gospel of Mark, and Jesus is thrusting out demons all over the place. But we don't get that in John. He doesn't focus. John doesn't focus on that. Um, there are things that happen in the Gospel of John that he preserves for us under the inspiration of the Spirit that the other writers don't mention. The, the wedding at Cana where he turns water uh, into wine, the coming of Nicodemus and the dialogue about being born again where Nicodemus talks to him, the, the woman at the, uh, at the well, the Samaritan woman that he encounters in chapter 4, the lengthy recording of his prayer on the eve of his death in chapter 17. We don't get those things in the other Gospels. So, it does preserve some, some interesting things about Jesus, but the point I'm making is every gospel is selective and they write with a purpose. So John selects these things and preserves them for a purpose. Another thing John does is he gives us a lot of information about how Jesus fulfills Old Testament ceremony ceremonial law. Jesus is the new temple. Jesus comes at the, at the, at the, uh, at the uh, feast of booths, and he is the fulfillment of the feast of booths. So he reveals those things to us. Another thing, John talks more about the Holy Spirit than any of the other three Gospels. So there's various things that he wants to reveal from the life of Jesus so that we will have a picture of the Savior. And all of these things are marshaled together in a single story, in a single account, for this purpose— Number two, the purpose of the Gospel of John is, verse 31, they're written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. They're written, he's recorded, he has, he has saved, he has preserved, he is revealing these things about Jesus with a singular purpose that as you hear it read or as you read it, you would come to believe, I would come to believe, in Jesus, that he is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. Well, does that mean that the book is written as an evangelistic tract, a lengthy uh, presentation of evangelism? Why did I write these, John says? So that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So is this evangelistic? Some, Some commentators say yes. The whole purpose of John is to convince the unconvinced. That's the whole purpose. That's why... Um, if you've ever heard somebody say when somebody first becomes a Christian, they almost always tell them, read the Gospel of John, as opposed to, there's this book called Leviticus, why don't you read that? Most people don't start there, but they often start in the Gospel of John. Why, does, why is that counsel given? Because John's purpose is to reveal that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that would confirm someone in their faith and help them understand who Jesus is. So that's why it's often recommended to a new believer. Um, Others say, no, it's, it's really written to build up Christians in their existing faith. So the real purpose of John is to reveal the works and the person and the character of Christ so that those who already believe are strengthened in their faith. Well, I don't really see any need to draw aside to pick a team on that one. I think both are true. If you're here and you're not a believer, uh, if you read through this book, if you come to these, this series, um, I pray that God will grant you new life and you'll become a Christian because that's a purpose of this book. If you are here and you are a Christian, then I trust that this book will help you and help me grow in Christ. And and the reality is that becoming a Christian and growing in Christ are the result of the same message and the same process. They're both the result of hearing the gospel and repenting of sin and believing in Jesus. That's how you become a Christian. And there's not a new plan once you are a Christian. It's still the message of Jesus and the gospel applied to our lives where we turn from sin and trust in him. That's Christian growth. That's conversion, and that's Christian growth as well. So really both take place. And it's important for the Christian to, for us to grow deeper in our understanding of Christ, for our roots to grow deeper. John can write to Christians and say, these are written so that you may believe. Even though you already believe, you may continue to believe. You may grow in belief. You may deepen in your belief in Jesus Christ. And the reason that's relevant for Christians is because that's how we mature, is by knowing Jesus Christ. We don't need primarily a new technique. We don't primarily need uh, a, 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 you know, some kind of a new program. We don't primarily need a, just a better practice. We don't need just a list of best Christian practices. We need to know Jesus more intimately. We need to trust Jesus in a more real way. As we battle sin, our battle with sin is a battle of belief in Christ. Because when we give over to sin, when we, give our, when we walk in sin, when we pursue sin, when we have issues in our life that are life-dominating sins, those are places where we're not believing in Jesus. And sometimes there can be the impression that we need profound, you know, just incredibly discerning counsel to come to some answer and deliverance of those problems. We don't. We need Jesus. That's what we need, is we need Christ. You see, when I run to sin and I hold on to sin, the problem is that I've lost my grip on Jesus. He's no longer, I'm no no longer believing that he is the Christ, that he is the Son of God. I'm no longer believing that Jesus is my good, that Jesus is my hope, that Jesus is my security, that Jesus is my Savior. I'm believing that this money is, that um, illicit sex is, that food is, that getting my way, that that's the most important thing, so I'm going to respond in anger or impatience or whatever it is. So ultimately a sin problem is a failure to believe and to trust and to rest in Jesus Christ problem. And the starting place to get delivered from sin is to get a better acquaintance and knowledge and experience of Jesus Christ. It's to return, just as a new believer, to the gospel, to the Jesus who gave his life for us, who died in our place, who sacrificed to pay the price for those sins and was raised from the grave with the power to deliver us from sin. It's not a new technique that we need. It's more of Jesus that we need and his resurrection power in our lives. So the study of this book will be wonderfully liberating in areas of sin for us. That's my anticipation for my own life and for you as well, Because when we sin, what we're saying is that Christ is no longer enough for us. I need Jesus plus this to be happy. I need Jesus plus this to be fulfilled. I need Jesus plus this to survive. And so the study of Christ and his life and his person and his work and a slow process of meditating on him and encountering him by his Holy Spirit is freeing. He who the Son sets free is free indeed. He is life. John, that's a big theme in John, that he is the life as well. So this is a book for unbelievers. It's a book for Christians as well. God wants us to believe what? The purpose is that we would believe what? First of all, that he is the Christ. That he is the Christ. Christ is the Greek word for which the Hebrew word is Messiah. And they both mean the same thing. Messiah or Christ mean Anointed. Anointed. Anointed means smeared with oil is what it literally means. And so the anointed person was the person that was smeared with oil in the Old Testament. It was a person who was set apart, who was chosen for some particular task uh, as a priest or um, something some such thing as that. They were selected and chosen by God for a task. So the Messiah is the chosen one, the expected one. A king was chosen as well, the ultimate king. He wants us to read and understand that Jesus is the anticipated, expected, sent one, anointed one from God, that he is the chosen one that would come as a king greater in the line of David, but greater than David, the king who would come and make all things right, the king that would come and restore, the king that would come and bring shalom or peace where everything is right on earth. There was an anticipation that the one who would come who would crush the serpent's head that was prophesied in Genesis 3 and that was pictured in the king who would come, that this one would come and rule and reign. And so in John, we see that Jesus is that anticipated, expected Messiah, and he's going to show us how Jesus fulfills that expectation. But he's also going to show us that Jesus wasn't the Messiah that the people of Israel expected because he didn't come as a king in power but he came as a suffering servant who lays down his life and will return in power to rule and to reign. So it's written that we may know that Jesus is the anticipated one from the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the anticipated one that would come and make all things right, would bring, would bring restoration. And he does that by making all things right, by forgiving sins, granting new life, and then one day he will return and rule and reign in a new heaven and a new earth And all of those expectations physically, eternally, will be fulfilled as well. Okay, secondly, he says, that you may believe that he is the Christ or the Messiah, the Son of God. The Son of God. Now, uh, the Son of God is a title for Jesus that we find in all the Gospels. But in John's Gospel, when he talks about Jesus being the Son, we're about to do a little survey of Scripture here, uh, of John, when he talks about Jesus being the Son, he's not just talking about a title, Son of God that means Messiah. He's talking about usually Jesus's relationship with the Father. Jesus, and it's, it's it's about to sound like I'm going to go on a rabbit trail, but I'm going to bring it back. So if you'll trust me on this, I'm going to bring this back. That about this Son of God thing. The Son of God in the Gospel of John, when Jesus has that on his lips, he's usually talking about something in relation to his relationship with the Father, Um, that he is a representative of the Father, that he is sent from the Father, that he is dependent on the Father, that sort of thing. Um, Kostenberger, who is a a New Testament scholar, a preeminent scholar on the Gospel of John, and if you have the ESV study Bible, he wrote your notes, the the notes at the bottom of the page, not the Bible, but the notes below the Bible. Uh, He wrote those, and they're very good. People have asked me, what can I study to understand John and get going? Here's what you can do. You can read three pages. They're the three introductory pages to the Gospel of John in uh, in the English Standard Version study Bible. And uh, I I could give you books where you could go read a couple hundred pages and not get as much as you'll get in those three. So all i got to do is read three pages. uh, And that's your assignment. Read them for next week. So you'll be ready when we get into chapter one. But read those three pages. But this is what he says. He says, John's favorite designation for Jesus is that of the Son sent by the Father. John's most common designation for Jesus. So he wants us to know he's the Son of God. But what does he want us to know about him being the Son of God? That he is the one sent by the Father. John emphasizes this in a way that Mark and Matthew and Luke do not. Now, Jesus obviously said these things, but Mark and Matthew and Luke chose to emphasize other things that Jesus said. For instance, in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus never says that he's sent by the Father, except in one parable where he's telling a story about a guy who sends his son to the vineyard, and it represents Jesus, but he tells a parable. In Matthew, twice Jesus says he's sent by the Father. In Luke, one time he says he's sent by the Father. In John, 17 times Jesus says he sent me. Six times he says the Father sent me. 15 times he refers to being sent out. Or uses that language. So a primary designation of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Now stick with me. This is a rabbit trail. Where we're coming back. Is that he is the sent one. He wants us to fu- fundamentally read this text and believe that he is the Messiah. The one who comes to bring salvation. And that he is the sent one. The son of the father. He is equal to God. Jesus is God. But in this language of Son of God, he is subordinate to the, to the Father in function. He's equal in character, equal in dignity, equal in divinity, but he functions as one who is sent by the Father's authority. And he comes to, for instance, obey the Father. He comes to do what he sees the Father doing. He comes to glorify the Father. He's sent to reveal the Father. He's sent as the obedient Son who is dependent on the Father. And once we see this, um, it'll, it'll change the way we read the Gospel of John, because this is on every, uh, almost every chapter of the Gospel of John. A couple things, real quick. I'm just, We'll look at this and survey what it means that he's the Son of God in the Gospel of John. Turn, turn to John 3.16, probably the most familiar passage in the whole book. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The Father sends the Son to save people. He's sent by the Father with the purpose of salvation. Look at verse 34 of the same chapter. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So the Son is sent by the Father, and he utters the words of God. The Son is the messenger who comes bringing, uh, bringing the Father's message perfectly so that if you believe in the Son, you receive eternal Life. The Son is sent to speak the words of God. And why is this important? Because John said this is the whole reason he wrote his gospel, that you would know he's the Son of God. What kind of Son of God is he? He's the Son sent to save, verse 17. He's the Son who comes bringing the Word of God. Look at verse uh, 30, chapter 4, 34. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. The greatest goal of Jesus is to do the Father's will. The greatest goal of Jesus is to do the work that the Father sent him to do, and it's so important to him, it's more important than food. The driving force in Jesus' ministry is to do the work of the Father to fulfill the will of the Father that was sent him, greater than his natural appetite is that desire to do the will of God. Uh, Look at chapter 5. but has given all judgments to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they, they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So here he's saying the Son is dependent on the Father, he only does what he sees the Father doing. He's the Son is dependent on the Father. He represents the Father to the degree that to honor the Son is to honor the Father. And he is sent as the one who is dependent on the Father. He only does what the Father does. So he comes as the sent one dependent on the Father. Look at uh, chapter 8, verse 28. Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He and that I do nothing on my own authority, but I speak just as the Father taught me, and He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. Track with me. We're coming back. This is all going to loop back. Okay. So what he's saying here is the Father is with the Son. So He comes in His authority and He comes with His presence. He's the sent one, sent in the Father's presence. Look a few verses down, 842. Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. So why am I here? Because I was sent by the Father. Not of my own accord. I came in obedience to God. I came in obedience to God, the Father. Okay, one other passage, 12, and this is all over the place, but we're just going to look at one more here, 1249, 1249. Um, I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak, and I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. So he's sent by the Father, he speaks his word with a He sent with the Father's authority. So let me just review really quickly all of those things. Here's what we learned John writes so that we'll know Jesus is the Son of God. What do we need to know about the Son of God? Is that just a title? It's a title, but it's a relationship. And here's what we learned just the verses we saw Jesus is sent by the Father to save. Jesus is sent by the Father to speak the words of the Father. Jesus is sent to do the Father's will and to complete the work that the Father has given him. Jesus is sent as one who is dependent on the Father. Jesus is sent with the Father's presence. He is with me. Jesus is sent in obedience to the Father. I didn't come of my own accord. I came because he sent me. Jesus is sent with the Father's authority. I speak his word, he says, and they are authority. Jesus is commissioned. He is charged, he is called, he is sent with a message to represent the one who sent him. And so if we are to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, we are to be convinced that his mission and his primary self-designation in this gospel is that he is sent by the Father for the purpose of saving people for the Father. Using the Father's words in the Father's presence, with the Father's authority, to lay down his life as a sacrifice so that our sins are forgiven if we believe in him. The mission of Jesus is that he is sent by the Father. That, that is the, that's really the theme of the gospel in many ways, and we're going to call this series Sent because Jesus is the sent one. Now, it does not stop there because the one who is sent by the Father Sins as well. Not sin, S-I-N. Sins as well. Chapter 20, where we were, look back a few verses, 21. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Several times in the gospel this appears where Jesus says, As the Father sent me, so I now am sending you. That has relevance to every one of us in the room. That defines the nature of our mission in life. That defines the nature of our church. That Jesus is sent from the Father to save. He saves us. And now as Jesus was sent, we are sent. That's the defining paradigm of our lives. That we are to live sent by God. Now what does it mean that we're sent like he sent? Well, we're not sent incarnationally. We're not sent in the incarnation. He is God and becomes man. We're not sent like that. We're not sent to make atonement. He comes and dies for our sins. We're not sent like that. How are we sent? Everything I just read. Everything I We are sent to represent the Father so that people may be saved. We are sent to speak the words of God to one another and to others that they may know Jesus Christ. We are sent to do the Father's will so that living for Him and fulfilling His work would be more precious to us than food itself. We are sent as people who are dependent On the Father. That's what Jesus, he came dependent on the Father. We are sent as those who are dependent. 829, we are sent with the Father's presence by the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I'm sent and he's with me. You're sent and the Holy Spirit is with you as well. You're sent to represent Jesus who's sent by the Father so that people may be saved and that we may be built up together. We are sent in obedience to the Father. Jesus says, I didn't come of my own accord. I came because the Father sent me. You're not saved of your own accord. You're saved because God has saved you. Jesus Christ has given his life for you. You don't exist of your own accord. You exist for the glory of God. You're sent to bring him glory. You're sent to build up the church. You're sent to be a light in a dark world, representing the Father with the words of God. As Jesus is sent as the Son of God, of God, so are we sent as well. He said he didn't come of his own accord. He came in obedience to God's will. We're sent to be obedient to God. He said he didn't come speaking words of his own authority, but he's sent with the Father's authority. The Father's authority is on your lap this morning. This is the authority of God, and we are called to know it, learn it, be changed by it, and communicate it to those who don't know Jesus yet. You are sent with the authority of the Father. And it's right here. It's not your own doing, my own doing. It's the scripture. So if we are going to know and believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and if we briefly survey John and find out the most common designation in all the gospel for Jesus is, I am the Son sent by the Father, then we're going to have to connect to the mission of Jesus. We will miss the purpose of this gospel if we do not understand the mission of Jesus and the resultant mission that we have. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. That's something to live for in 2011. There's a lot of nonsense in our lives that is not worth living for in 2011. There's a lot of trivia. Uh, There's a lot of wasted wasted time and money and relationship and interaction. There's a lot of meaninglessness in the world. But that's something you can live for in 2011. Jesus is sent by the Father to save us. And once he saved us, he gave me something to live for. Because he says, as the Father sent me, so I send you. That changes the dynamic and the purpose and the flavor of our lives, or it's intended to do so, and I pray it will over the coming year. We experience new life in Christ as we're saved, and we represent him. Very quickly, that's the purpose of the Gospel of John. So there's the nature of the Gospel. It's a selective account of Jesus Christ, and we can see how he kind of hones in on that selective account. The purpose is that we might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and that he's the Son of God. And here's the fruit of the Gospel of John. Look at what he says. I love this. See, if I didn't have this in the Bible, you'd think I'm preaching some kind of faith message to you or not prosperity faith message. But this is what the Bible says, that we may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So that gives me a lot to look forward to in this year of studying this book, is that he says, as you know Jesus... As you believe Jesus, that doesn't mean just cognitively believing for salvation. That means leaning on him and trusting in him. As you believe in Jesus, the goal is that you'll have life to the full. This is how he says it in chapter 10. In chapter 10 he says that you will have life. Jesus came that we'd have life, that we'd have it abundantly. That you would have full, meaningful. Now that does not mean physical riches, That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about something far better. You might have physical riches, you may not, but regardless, he's talking about something far better. He's talking about that you would know Jesus, that he is life, that he would be your life, that you would have eternal life, which starts now. Eternal life's not for after you die. Eternal life is a quality of life that begins now in the resurrection power of Jesus Christ by his spirit according to his word so that you can have full life, joyful, purposeful existence, an existence where where you are connected to the mission of Jesus? What is fuller than knowing the Creator, being saved by the Creator, having all our sins forgiven, having a hope of eternity, being welcomed before a throne of grace, having the love of Jesus extended to us, and then not only that, that had been more than enough. Not only that, but then given a purpose to be sent as He was sent In the same manner, not identically, obviously, uh, incarnation, atonement, other things. But generally, dependent with the authority of the Scripture, depending on the Lord, with a purpose in our lives. That is life to the full. To know Jesus who saved us, changes us, and then calls us into His mission. To live a sent life. To live a sent life among one another so that we build each other up in the faith. To live a sent life in our families... So that the grace of God is what we're about and what unites us. And we are sent to the next generation as parents to introduce them to Christ and to raise them to know him and to see him save them. We're sent in the workplace. You're sent to your extended family. You're sent to your neighborhood. It's not just your address. It's where you're sent. That's where you're to live sent. That's where I'm to live sent. Your school, you didn't just randomly end up in that classroom with those students and that teacher. God sent you there. So that as he sent the son to save people, so he would send you, dependent on God in His authority, with His message to see other people saved. So we're we're sent people, and that's just a wonderful way to live. Some of us are going to be sent to Namibia this summer. I mean, this is this year's starting off crazy. I mean, here we're starting off, and we just got we're sending people to Africa and stuff. That's fantastic. So be people sent to another part of the globe this year. But whether you're sent to Namibia, I don't know if you're sent there or not. But I know that we are sent. To this area as a church, to our neighborhoods, to our workplaces, to our families, to our community groups, we're sent to live a sent life. And that is where we experience life in the full. It's life in Christ. It's life in Christ. It's where other things are diminished, and his person and his work is raised and elevated in our eyes so that we love him. A couple of little points of application here. Um. I'd encourage you to begin reading on your own the Gospel of John. I haven't read it through in a sitting, so I don't know how long it takes. But uh, you may not read it in a sitting. Maybe you read it in two sittings or five sittings or ten sittings or a chapter a day, 21 sittings. But I'd encourage you to read through this Gospel. If you have the ESV Study Bible, um, and we have it at the Resource Center, I'd encourage you to read it and chart the the notes below because they'll help you explain. They'll help explain a lot of the Gospel To you, And and as you're reading it and as we're going through it, let's do so prayerfully, asking that God's purpose in the book would bear fruit in our lives. Because whatever chapter we're in, whether it's Jesus in the temple, whether it's Jesus before Pilate, whether it's Jesus with the woman at the well, wherever it is, John, under the power of the Holy Spirit, wrote that. That passage, that account, that story, he wrote that so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the one sent from the Father, that we would believe that. So let's pray that every word we read as we meditate on this, pray about it and study it, that our belief in Jesus is cultivated and grows. I expect there may be some in the room that aren't even Christians. And our prayer is that as we go through this, you'd believe for the first time. So let's pray that people would come to faith in the coming year as we study this. Let's pray that our own faith would be built up and that we would have life in his name. That's the goal, that you would have life in his name. That we wouldn't have life, and draw our life from the world. That we wouldn't suck life out of the temporal and try to find meaning. But we'd have life in Jesus. That's the purpose of the book. So we want to pray that as we read, if I'm, if you may want to read this in your devotion. You may want to read it in your study time. You will be reading it if you come here on Sunday mornings. So uh, we'll be going over this in our community group. So as we're reading, let's be praying, God, would you... Firm up my faith and trust and rest and confidence and peace in you so that I have full life in you. And secondly, begin to pray about what it means to live a sent life. To live a sent life. He doesn't say I'm sending you all over. He just says it a few times. But he makes the comparison to his being sent. So whenever we read about him being sent, again, a few may be unique, but generally let's look for the principle behind that. And realize that we're sent in the same way. So if Jesus is dependent on the Father, how much more are we dependent on God? And let's ask God to cultivate that in our lives, and then let's, dependent on him, look to be sent to those around us to point them to him, the Savior who saves. Let's consider what it means to be sent, what it means that he was sent. How gracious God is to send his own son, John 3, 16, so that by believing in him, We would not perish. We would not be condemned, but have eternal life. God is so gracious. Christ is so merciful to us. We'll slowly walk through his death on our behalf and see how kind he is to save us. He was sent at great cost. He was sent. He gave his son, and the son endured suffering on our behalf and died in our place. Sent at great cost to to prove his love, to demonstrate his mercy and his kindness towards us. Why? So that we could be forgiven, and so that we who don't deserve it could experience life in the full, and so that we could be sent on his mission to live a life pleasing to him. There it is, an, open, an opening into the coming year. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.